You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. If you're visiting with us, we're doing something a little different today. We do things different from time to time, not for the sake of being different, but when you look at the Bible, the Bible is the Word of God, but the Bible is also a piece of literature. God chose to speak through people by the power of His Holy Spirit to communicate His story. And so there's one thing we have to remember about the Bible. The Bible is story. It is telling the story of God in the world, and it's telling what he is doing in the world and it's telling how we can get involved in his story or participate in his story in the world. When we use the word story, when I use the word story, I do not mean some sort of made-up story. I mean a, a, a retelling of life. And so when we look at the Bible, the Bible is story. And again, it's literature and it's different forms of literature. It has everything from historical literature to narrative and different forms of narrative to poetry to all types of uh, Hebrew poetry within itself has several different forms of literature within even itself. And so you look at the Bible and it is story. And it is God inviting us into His story. And so His story then in a very real way becomes our story. And so when you look at the way God communicated to us, He didn't communicate to us in facts and figures and just mere information, dull truths. When you think about your life, if I were to ask you, Tell me about your marriage, for those who are married. You would, somewhere in that telling, tell a story. You might tell of how you met your spouse. You might tell of a funny incident that really highlights your story. If I were to say, tell me about your kids, you would begin to move away from telling me informational facts about your children into a story sort of form, into a narrative form. When we think about our lives and the good things that have happened to our lives and the bad things that have happened to our lives, we don't remember them in terms of just mere information and facts. We remember them in terms of story. We are storied people. And our God is a storied God. And I wrestle with this as I preach. And if you know now and and you've heard me uh, since I've been here for 16 months, I always try to weave in the story somewhere in the sermon. Whether I'm telling Joan's story a little bit throughout the sermon like last week, or whether the whole sermon's a story, whether it's made up of three or four different stories, all that fit into the story that God is telling in Scripture. Because I think as a people, we communicate profoundly by stories. We remember stories. And maybe we remember stories because we can see a bit of ourselves in the story. I mean, how many times do you see a movie, or how many times do you hear a story, and you say, man, I can identify with that character or that person. We're storied people. So today, you're going to hear a sermon, as always, and we call our sermons conversations. And the reason we call them conversations is not to be cool and not to be postmodern or tricky or whatever. It's because my prayer is that you'll be invited into a conversation, that what happens here carries on into your life with God through the week, carries on with your family through the week. We call them conversations with intentionality, not just to be cute. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to do a different form of conversation, And it's still a sermon, but it's not going to be the kind of sermon you're used to from me. Instead, I've invited Randy, a member of our church family, my brother and friend, to come up and help preach the sermon. And we're going to preach it in a form of conversation. Because what I'm hoping you will see is that as Randy tells his story, that you'll see God working in his story. That you'll see God bringing his story together. That you'll see within his story the truth 
of Colossians 1, 15 to 20, which if you listen, you genuinely can. And not only that, that maybe, just maybe, you'll find bits and pieces of your story inside of his story. So I've asked Randy, now the first thing I ask you to do is ignore the height differences between me and Randy. Alright, it, it's rather absurd what, what we have going on here. Um, which is why I chose tables and chairs to make this as comfortable for me and Randy as possible. Um, I have a booster that I may get for second service if it looks too awkward. Um, but, but come on up, Randy. This is Randy Otis. If you don't know Randy, his, his sweet bride is Aaron Otis and his two little girls, Hattie and Kaya. And I've just invited Randy to tell a little bit of his story um, Randy has a very unique story. Uh, some of us may even think that in a lot of ways, Randy has a bit of a dramatic story. Um, and so, Randy, why don't you just start off, tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up for you. Well, I was born in Billings, Montana. Uh, my dad was a truck driver and also owned Harley-Davidson motorcycles. Um, we were a middle-class family, I would consider. Uh, we owned a nice house, nice vehicles. Um, Dad made enough money back then that Mom could stay at home and take care of us. Um, I had an older sister, uh, or have an older sister, and um, Dad was gone a lot uh, on the road with work. And when he was home, if the weather was nice enough, he was working on his on his motorcycles or out riding them with friends. So Mom basically stayed home and took care of us kids. So you weren't raised in any way, shape, form, or fashion a a Christian home or a church home. Not at all. And so. We're going to sort of fast forward and get you to about age five. Uh, you, everything was growing up. You were, you were sort of okay. You, you had a distant dad, of course. You didn't see him much. Um, you had an interesting relationship with your mom. But at age five, something happened that really turned your life around. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I remember my mom and dad were out uh, riding motorcycles um, with friends. And my sister and I were at home with a babysitter. And it was later at night, and I heard the motorcycle pull up into the driveway. And... Uh, when, the, when the motorcycle shut off, I could hear my mom and dad yelling at each other. Uh, now, my dad was a big guy. Um, Imagine that. Big, big bushy beard, long hair, and since he'd been out on motorcycles all day, he was in, uh, you know, all decked out in his leather. And I could hear them yelling back and forth outside. And when my dad came in through the back door, now this door is a, a wooden door, comes into the kitchen, and it had a big window in it. He slammed the door, he locked it, and... He looked at my sister and I and he said, you that door stays locked, do you understand me? Of course, both of us are terrified. Um, my mom comes up onto the step and we watch her punch through the back window, um, ripping her arm to shreds and she reaches in and unlocks the door. Um, the babysitter happened to be a, a family friend of ours, so my sister and the babysitter and I all took off. We ran over to, to their house and uh, we stayed there until the next afternoon when my mom showed up uh, to get us. She had obviously had to go to the ER and her arm was all wrapped up, um, stitches, mini stitches. She also had black eyes, um, cut lip, and little did I know then, but this, this was the time that, that my life would start to change. And your mom and dad had obviously a physically abusive relationship and you saw this firsthand at the age of five uh, with your sister and so, now, now, a year goes by, and you're living in this chaos of an abusive home. Um, but, but as if that wasn't enough for your life to change, something else happens that changes your life. Well, my little brother, Pat, he was born, and I say little because when he was born, 
he was premature. He, he weighed <coughs> two pounds, 11 ounces. Uh, you never tell that today. He's six foot, 300 pounds. But again, imagine that. Yeah. So he was born. Um, he was in the hospital for quite a while, and we were able to bring him home in an incubator. Um, shortly after that, my mom and dad had got a divorce. Um, my dad filed for a divorce. He had uh, met a truck stop waitress and began to have an affair. And so he moved out. Um, my mom packed up our stuff, and we moved into a, a single-wide trailer, uh, two-bedroom. Mom began to drink a lot, uh, bar, bar scene, and uh, she wasn't home a lot, so that, that left me, at this time, six, seven-year-old kid, um, to take care of my little brother, who was in an incubator. Um, she would come home late at night uh, with whichever guy showed her the most attention at the bar. Um, her friends, they would party. So I had to keep Pat from crying and try to keep him as quiet as I could because if he wasn't quiet, then my mom was upset with me because we were interrupting her party. She'd pass out on the couch. Um, of course, I didn't want to wake her up because she wasn't, wasn't the friendliest uh, when she was drinking or when you woke her up when she passed out. I'd sneak past her as she was passed out on the couch go into the kitchen, um, find a can of soup, and I would eat it right out of the can, making as little noise as possible. So it, it was my responsibility to take care of my brother. My brother. Yeah. So over the next couple of years, this just continues to sort of spiral. Um, but even over the next couple of years, as you're sort of now the, the man of the house, and you're trying to make a connection with your dad and try to have him in your life, but you continue to experience uh, empty promises from him. He would promise to spend time. He wouldn't show up. Just continue to to break your heart as a you know, six, seven, eight-year-old little boy. And then over that time, your mom meets uh, Bud, and he comes to live in the home and, and, and takes over as man of the house. That, that couldn't have been easy. T tell, us a, tell us a little bit about that. Well, that was a very hard situation. Um, like you said, my, my dad would fill me full of empty promises, tell me he was going to come get me. Uh, he wouldn't show up. And uh, my sister lived with him at this time. She actually moved in with my dad. So my mom's drinking uh, decreased a little bit when, when she first met Bud, and, and things seemed okay. He, he took us uh, camping, and he was never abusive towards us, um, you know, in our younger stages. And uh, everything, it wasn't horrible, but it wasn't, it wasn't great. Right. So now you have this new dynamic. So you're, you're 12 years old. Um, like you said, things haven't been great, but they haven't been really horrible. And at 12 years old, you meet finally a, a good friend, or what you would consider a good friend. His name was Kevin, but he's 24 years old, and, and you're only 12. Um, and, and, and you called him your friend, and, and Kevin, as a friend, got you and your stepdad, uh, Bud, a, a job working at the railroad tracks, right? Correct. And uh, you worked with them. and So now you're a 12-year-old kid working with your stepdad, working with your 24-year-old friend, and a whole bunch of other adults. Um, that must have been a, a very interesting experience for a 12-year-old mind. It was. Uh, I learned a, a lot of things um, working with grown men. Uh, I learned good work ethic, um, which prepared me for later on in life, uh, operating heavy equipment. Uh, gave me some job skills, but also I, I learned some um, not so good things. Uh, that's when I started drinking, 12 years old. Um, I, I was drinking, and it wasn't just a beer here and there. It was every night after work. Uh, we, we were getting to the point where we were passing out. 
and it was so much a part of your regular life. Your your mom and, and Bud were completely okay with this. They were. In fact, they bought it for me all, all through high school. They bought it for me. Um, my my mom's side of the family would confront her about it, and her her uh, comment would always be, "He's old enough to work with the men. He's old enough to drink with the men." So now you grow into this high school student. Uh, you would come to your freshman year. Uh, you're already living hard, uh, drinking a lot, and you're you're in that kind of environment. Um, you're you're a tall kid now, I would think, and you're probably a, a muscular kid working on the on the railroad tracks. What was life like for you in in, in high school, kind of living the life you were living and being the size that you are? Well, my freshman year, um, I when I did go to school, uh, I was drunk. I passed out in class. Um, started fights all the time, always picking on the little kid, uh, but I also stood up for the little kid. Um, I guess I always felt that if, if I was bullying somebody else, then I wasn't the one being bullied, and that was a way to get attention, and the, the alcohol took over, so it, it, it caused a lot of problems. You began to make some good friends, began to play football. Um, your friends, in a sense, become your family because your family life is so so messed up, so chaotic. Uh, and you get to your senior year and you find out that you're not going to graduate on time because of the way you've been living in your high school years. And But you're given an option. You're given an option from the counselor. Remember you telling me to uh, to work half a day and then go to school half a day. But but this is really hard on you because of the fear of, of losing, losing your friendships, the only friendships that you really have, the sort of abandonment that you felt from your dad and from your friends. And how is everything evolving at home now that you are coming into your own as a young man? Well, my mom, <clears throat> by this point, my mom had started drinking about a case of beer a day, if, if not more. Um, but it, he, he usually drank Mad Dog 2020, but by this time he had uh, moved on to whiskey. Uh, they fought constantly over the, the dumbest things. I mean, TV shows, whatever, it was anything to argue about. And this, you know, seeing the, the physical abuse and, and that stuff in uh, my younger years, I had told Bud in one of my drunken stupors one night when I was drinking with them that if he ever raised a hand to any of us that I would personally kill him. So things um, weren't physical between him and my mom at all, but there was definitely uh, the abuse, the, the mental and the the, uh, verbal abuse, yeah. And so you, contrary to popular belief of your family and of, of other relatives, you, you actually graduate. You're not dead. You're not in jail, uh, which uh, maybe you tell them seem to be their sort of view of you. But everything's getting even worse at home. Uh, your mom's mother had passed away, and uh, now it's now it's summertime, and you have a big decision to make. We know that you're in the Coast Guard, so we know that this decision landed you in the Coast Guard. But, but tell us about that summer, because I know that some very uh, strange and... and tragic events took place for you that summer? Well, on the 4th of July in 1995, uh, Bud and my mom were, were drunk. Uh, Bud had actually been drinking Everclear that day. And uh, I was sitting in a rocking chair. And I was rocking in the rocking chair. And, and Bud said to me, why are you rocking in that chair? Well, I'm a pretty good-sized kid. And I said, well, because it's a rocking chair. So he didn't like that answer, and he said, well, I'm going to put an end to that. So he stands up, and I see him walking down 
the hallway towards their bedroom, and he's fumbling with a set of keys, and he stops in front of the gun lock. And I said to my mom, Mom, he's getting a gun. She said, no, he's not. Well, he comes back down the hallway, and he has a fully loaded SKS assault rifle. And he stops in front of me, and he cycles around into the chamber, and he sticks the barrel about three to six inches from my face. Well, survivor instinct kind of kicked in, and I grabbed the barrel with my left hand, grabbing by the throat with the right hand. The gun falls to the ground. We're right behind it. We get to the ground. I straddle over the top of him, and I'm squeezing his throat with my left hand, and I'm punching him in the mouth with my right hand. And I remember telling him as I'm hitting him that if, he, if he's ever going to pull a gun on me again, he better pull the trigger. Well, I noticed that his eyes kind of start to roll back in the back of his head. They're starting to flicker. Blood's running out of his mouth. And it was like a, a voice in my head that said, Randy, get off with it. You're, you're going to kill him, and it's not worth it. So I jumped to my feet, and the adrenaline's going, and I'm bouncing around the house, tiny, single-wide trailer living room. And he makes it to his feet, and he looks at me, and he says, all I've ever tried to do is love you. And that's when I told him that he needed to leave. So... He hooked up to his camp trailer and towed it up to the woods where he'd been working. And he came down on the weekends, stayed at the hotel where my mom worked. And that was about it. Now, your mom didn't really forgive you for that. No, I, I still don't think she has to this day. So, life evolves, you stay home for a while, but things continue to get worse as that seems to be the trend. And you move out to live with your sister, but then there's still your dad. How are, how are things going on with your dad at this point in your life? Well, it was in October. I finally moved in with my sister after an argument with my mom. And my sister came and got me. We moved, I moved in. And I was scheduled to leave for Coast Guard boot camp in November. During that time that I lived with my sister, um, my dad and I began to, to grow close. Uh, it was during hunting season. I got to go hunting with him all the time. Uh, I went to his Harley shop helped him out there as much as I could and our relationship was beginning to grow so when I left for boot camp I was I was happy I, I finally had a relationship with my dad uh, you know things things couldn't be better at that time for what I thought and they came up to the airport my dad my stepmom my sister my brother-in-law my brother and uh, as I got ready to get on the plane my dad Remember, he's a, he's a big guy. I've never seen him like this. He hugs me, and he has tears in his eyes, and he says, I love you, kiddo. And that was the first time I ever heard him say that. Yeah. And so now your, your relationship with your dad has taken a, a different turn. And I know you're, you told me that you go on, you leave, and you go to Coast Guard. Things are going seemingly well, but then you get a call from your mom. It was uh, a Sunday, it was June 9th, 1996, about 10 o'clock in the morning. Some friends on the ship wake me up and they said, um, your mom's on the phone. So I, I, I get on the phone and I hadn't talked to my mom in eight months. So I get on there and she said, Randy, you need to take leave, you need to come home. Your, your dad's in the hospital, he's not doing good. So. 
I hang up the phone, I jump in the shower, my friends are running around the ship, they're packing my suitcase for me, notifying the chain of command, um, basically getting me ready to go. As I turn off the shower, I hear them page my name over the, the uh, PA system, telling me to pick up the phone. So I knew that it couldn't be good. Uh, two of my friends ran in to the bathroom and they said, your mom's on the phone. So I get on the phone and they're all standing there looking at me and my mom said, he's gone. It, it was a matter of 10, 15 minutes and he was already gone. So came back home for the funeral and that was the last time. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't get to see my dad again, alive. So the last word you really heard from him was that he loved you. For you, still being a young man, enrolled in the Coast Guard, all of this is unpacked in your life. Where's, where is God in your mind and your life? I know you weren't raised in a Christian home. I know you weren't raised in church. So I know he wasn't in any way really part of your life, but did you have any view of God at this particular point? The only view of God that I had was he was an imaginary person that we blamed when things went wrong and we prayed to when we wanted something. That, that's the only view of God that I had. Yeah. Well, and so you take that view of God, you take your life and you're still going on in the Coast Guard, things are progressing, time has gone by, drinking and partying is your hobby. Uh, in a very real way, now you're, you're having the time of your life, but then something really, really changes in you uh, because something happens that gets your attention, uh, which happens to a lot of guys. Uh, you meet a girl. I do. Uh, some friends and I, we were out. We met some girls. Um, this, this girl and I began to see each other. And things kind of started to change. Uh, there was no way I was going to commit. I, I kept using, I could be transferred at any time as, as an excuse. Um, she, she really wasn't having that at all. But uh, so after a couple months of, of seeing her, uh, I get a phone call and they tell me I have three weeks to report to Seattle. So um, that was in July. And in July, I told this girl that I loved her. And still, you know, four months, I, I'm not going to ask her to marry me. So we were just going to take it and see how things worked out. So I got transferred up to Seattle. Uh, I found out that the ship that I was stationed on, we were in most of the time on the weekends. And we, on ships in the Coast Guard, we usually work from 7 in the morning till 1 in the afternoon. So on Friday, when I got off work, I jumped in my truck and drove the 400 miles down to Coos Bay, Oregon um, to surprise my girlfriend. As I pulled into the driveway, she was packing her truck up and she was coming up to Seattle to surprise me. <laughs> so that right there told me that you know things, things may change between us, that she was going to stay with me. So you end up marrying this girl? I do. Obviously, we, we know this girl, Erin, and uh, you end up having a two uh, beautiful little girls over time, Hattie and, and Kaya. And uh, Julie, if you'll pull this picture up, and of course, we, we've got to mention um, another important member of your family, um, the beloved puppy. Uh, and and uh, God, is, God is growing you. Uh, he's growing your wife. Um, 
you have a good career, you have a house now, you never thought your life would be this way, but I remember you telling me you still felt as though your life was incomplete. And um, where, where was God? Obviously, Aaron was raised in a Christian home, and so her and her family are very involved in the church, but where are you in light of this whole idea of God? I, I was still pretty lost. Um, I was involved with the volunteer fire department and the sheriff's office, and I remember Aaron talking to me, you know, on different occasions about uh, accepting God into my life, and um, I always felt that I was doing good things. You know, I was in the Coast Guard, I was I was with the, the sheriff's office and the, and the fire department, I was helping the community, and if God couldn't see that I was a good person by doing that, you know, what else did I have to do? Um, so it, I was still kind of confused and, and lost. But something clicked for you. Something clicked for you, and and you decided you were going to, to make a decision. I met uh, some people at church, amazing people. One, um, and this man, his, his faith is amazing. And he um, was always there to help, always there to talk. Uh, he helped Aaron and I on several house uh, projects when we bought our, our home. Just an outstanding man, and and he had a testimony of his own that was was, and he really um, turned me on to Christ. And I planned it was our, our last Sunday in in Oregon before we moved to Boise, Idaho. Dan was going to baptize. So we get to church, and you can't plan a surprise when your wife is raised in the in this town, and it's only for her benefit, I'll say 2,700 people. Um, but you know, rumors spread, and people talk, and I'm thinking that it's a, a great surprise. And she has the camera, and as soon as they call me up, she's all happy. She already knew about it, but. You know, that was a surprise to me, and that's when I began, began my walk with Christ. And so now you're walking with Jesus, and you moved to Boise, Idaho, and you lived there for a while, and, and then it leads you to Williamsburg. And Aaron and the kids are growing in faith, and, but you find yourself uh, at a bit of a roadblock. You know, she, she has this whole life experience to draw on in terms of what it looks like to follow Jesus, but you have nothing. I mean, you know, she's the first Christian you really need, and you, you have nothing to draw on. And... Uh, you guys came here, right? Actually, around the same time we got here, just a little bit before I remember. Um, and you feel like you're moving sideways in your faith at this point, but but there becomes a turning point for you, a turning point in your life. What? Tell us, tell us about that. Well, it was April of last year. Uh, I was at work, and Aaron had called and told me that my sister had been trying to get a hold of me. Uh, my mom was in the hospital in serious condition. She had been drunk the night before and tripped and fell and hit her head on the sidewalk, broke her neck, and lost movement in her body. And due to the alcoholism um, and her smoking and just her way of life, uh, they weren't sure she was going to make it. Um, her, she had multiple health problems. I, I was mad. I was, I was very frustrated. Um, 
I felt, you know, she was the one that did this. And we've been telling her for years that the alcohol was going to kill her. And I wouldn't call. Uh, I didn't want to call the hospital. You know, God had he pulled her through so many things between the abuse with my dad, um, her way of life, the breast cancer. How many more chances is he going to give her? And, you know, she, she didn't take advantage of, of pulling through those things to make herself a pro, uh, productive person. And she just resorted back to that. So I pretty much just wanted to cut myself off from her. But it, it was killing me. I, I didn't know how to feel. I was struggling. I remember, actually, we were in small group when we, Randy had shared this information. I remember you coming to me, and you were just, I could tell you were heavy, and you were eat up by the, I guess, the guilt in a way that you felt and, and felt and, and all the anger. And, and I remember you telling me that, that, you know, it'd be easier for you just to walk away from this situation, but in a very real way, your faith wouldn't let you, and you felt like you needed to do more, and so you made a call. I did. Um, after she'd been in the hospital for several months, uh, I, I finally called her, and we carried on a conversation like nothing even happened. Um, like she wasn't mad at me for not calling. I wasn't mad at her for what happened. And as I got ready to hang up, I just started talking. Uh, it was like God put the words in my mouth, and I told her, I said, I have to apologize. I have to tell you that I'm sorry. And she said, for what? And I said, I've, I've been mad. Alcohol has taken over. I want nothing to do with, with you and the alcohol. It's going to kill you. Uh, you have nothing to do with my kids. You don't call them. You don't write. Uh, they, they don't even know who you are. And it's because of the alcohol. And I said, how many times, how many more chances is God going to give you to do the right thing? And, you know, I had to apologize because she's my mom. And I'm a Christian. That moment you found forgiveness. I did. You found forgiveness for this woman who let your life just spiral out of control. And I was even sharing this with Randy this weekend. I've seen God change this man. Um, he just got to heal you and, 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 and do things in you uh, that I think has really sort of blown your mind uh, and, and, and maybe gotten Aaron's attention and, and, and really been a great testament to what God can do in your life. And now you know know you know what God can do uh, how does how do you knowing now what God can do and the obstacles God in Christ can, can lead you through um, and hold your life together when your life seemed to fall apart how does all of that truth now shape and determine the way you see your past and the way you even see your future well the way that I see my past um, you know it was a learning experience and God pulled me through that. He proved that he was faithful. Uh, he kept me safe. And he led me to the woman that led me to him. 
And the way that I see that God working in my future is I can achieve anything as long as I have him in my life and as long as I follow him. I think, you know, as, as you listen to Randy's story and you see God holding his world together and you look at it in light of that Colossians text, you know, guys like Randy are statistics in this world. And families like Randy are statistics in this world. And yet God uses Randy's life and brings him to this place. And he's got this beautiful wife and uh, these, these beautiful kids. Julie, feel put that picture up there. And, and you all know that they're, they're all leaders in our church family here. I mean, they're not, they're not people who just sort of come on weekends. I mean, they engage the story of God in their life. And, and then you look at that Colossians text and it says that, that Christ is who holds all things together. But there's a truth to that text that is often missing. I think in our minds, but Christ is holding all things together for a very distinct purpose, that text. It says, because for him all things were made. And God knew that when he created Randy, uh, that he had a plan for Randy's life. And that God knew that when Randy didn't even have a concept of God, and Randy is beating his stepdad up violently, that God speaks to Randy's heart and says, don't do it. Because God knew seeing what God can see, that one day Randy would be the husband of a wife and they would be the parents of kids who would change the world and change the world in subtle ways. You would change the world every time you love someone who doesn't know love. You would change the world every time you shared a Bible story with a kid who didn't know it. You would change the world when people would come on a Sunday and listen to a story like this and see the hand of God moving in Randy's life and see the hand of God moving in Randy's family. And so I'm reminded of of where we are really in our, in our story in Colossians where Paul says in chapter 3 verse 1 if you've been raised with Christ then seek what is above set your mind on what is above and seek to live the way he's called you to live seek to see the world the way he sees the world and I know Randy for you seeing your mom the way God sees your mom is a very difficult thing that only God can do inside of your life and I know that for you seeing your story as clearly as you see it, and having the boldness and the courage to share this story uh, is only because God has convicted you, compelled you, and even changed the way you see your own story. And let this be something for us. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what your story has been up to this point, there's a truth of Colossians 1.15 all the way through. The God who made the world made you, and the God who made you is holding your life together, even when your life feels as though it's utterly fallen apart. Because if you're here, no matter where you've been and no matter what you've done, there's a truth of Randy's story, and it's a truth of the cross. God is not finished with you yet. Let's wake up, and let's see the beauty of God. Let him take what he has begun in our life and bring it to completion. Thank you for sharing your story, Randy.